wonder was always this thing that gets described as an emotion, but then they go on for pages trying to explain why it's different. Well, maybe the emotion is not the word. Even Descartes starts to kind of hint at this when he says, well, it's the first of the emotions. We have no control of wonder. We can't say, I'm going to wonder now. Have that experience of all. And wonder is completely out of our hands. One who is experiencing wonder is the object of wonder, the recipient of wonder. So notice, it's not only an emotion, it's not only something that we cannot uh, fabricate or control, it acts on us. Even though it's coming from without, it's experience within. It's in that in-between place where wonder happens. It's never in our control. You're listening to the Theopoetics Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Burnett, and my conversation today is with Reverend Jose Francisco Morales Torres. Jose is the Director of Pastoral Formation at Disciples Seminary Foundation and is just finishing up his PhD in Comparative Theology and Philosophy at Claremont School of Theology on the topic of wonder. He has served in various capacities in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ as an Executive Regional Minister and Pastor and is taught as an adjunct professor at McCormick Theological Seminary. In this episode, Jose and I discuss a phenomenology of wonder and its relationship to generosity. We talk about how this wild form of wonder opens us up to the world, the self, and God, its connection with a life of liturgy and liberation, and how attuning to the ground and practice of generosity can make us radically available to the experience of wonder and joy. For more information about our sponsors, ARC, visit artsreligionculture.org. Thanks for listening. I'm excited to, to chat today because uh, the topic of your dissertation is around this idea of wonder. Um, and uh, as this is a theopoetics podcast, we like to talk about aesthetics and um and different avenues uh, into embodiment. And so um, this is going to be, I think, a really fun conversation. So before we jump yeah. into the, the topic there, I'd love to just hear a little bit about you, who you are, what your work is in the world. Um, how would you describe Jose to the world? Okay, sure, sure. <clears throat> well, um, so some of the people who know me best aren't, aren't behind my shoulder who can probably correct everything that I'm going to say, but we'll, we'll go. You can trust me at my word for now until, until the comments start rolling through. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm first and foremost a, 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 a creation of God, a child of God, and so that, that's my starting point. And as we talk more about the theme of wonder, that's actually bigger than, than, than we make it out to be. Uh, I'm also a, a pastor. I'm an ordained minister. I take that call very seriously. And uh, as a way of starting to throw uh, little hints at the topic, uh, I see wonder in the work of the church, uh, both in its liturgical expression, but also in what I call its liberative expression out in the world. I think that both of those ha- tap into wonder in a very deep sense. So I take the call as pastor very seriously. I've been a local church pastor. I've been also a community activist, adjunct professor. I've been a regional minister in my denomination, which is the closest thing we have to bishop. So as I like to say, a bishop with no bishop powers whatsoever. That's what yeah. a regional <laughs> minister is. So I've been, I've been a church bureaucrat. And I know that for some people and in some certain generations, that's a bad word. I, I embraced it. Uh, you know, somebody has to do the the plumbing and the, and the uh, electrical and, and do all the grimy work that nobody else was to do. So I did that for four and a half years and got what I call a bird's eye view of the church. Um, and it really gave me some, uh, both some things to worry about, but also some hope. Uh, I'm not one that, I don't, I don't think that the church is going to uh, hell in a handbasket like a lot of grim uh, naysayers. Um, if we look at the two-thirds world, uh, they're not asking whether the church is going to be around. Uh, the church is going to be alive and well. I think that's a North American problem, a European problem. Uh, and even within North America and Europe, there's signs of hope and life and uh, beauty and grace and mercy being extended in and through the church. And so um, um, that's where I stand on that. Um, and after doing the church bureaucrat thing, uh, I turned to studies, you know, uh, doctoral studies, you don't pick it, it picks you. And after restlessness for years and years and years, I had a 
have a wonderful wife and partner who said, you know, you need to get your blank out of the blank and go do your, uh, go do your PhD. And so I started that and she continued on to do uh, ministry. She's also an ordained minister um, as well. So talking shop at home is kind of awkward because it's the same thing for both. Yeah. Uh, and she's starting her own PhDs as well in Hebrew Bible. So, that, you know, shop upon shop upon shop. So, oh, yeah. And we're both, we're both the proud parents of uh, little Magnolia, who's, as I like to say, all of three. Uh, and I don't mean all of three quantitative. I mean qualitative. She's the fullness of three <laughs> years old. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I feel that uh, every day. So that's a little bit about myself. That's beautiful. Um, and we also happen to work in the same denomination. So yeah, you're getting yeah, a double yeah. disciple dialogue yeah, that's right. right here. That's Triple right. Point. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. That's right. That's yeah. It's yes. exciting. It's exciting. And I, and, yes. and I know this sounds crazy. We don't have enough of it within disciples. Uh, yeah. These sort of intra conversations that are very fruitful. So I'm glad that we're having it today. Yeah. Yeah. And you'd think that that would be more our DNA, you know, with the plurality of, of opinions uh, and people yeah. that we have in our denomination. But it's good to be doing it. Today. I would say, um, you know, the earliest uh, disciples, um, when you teach history and poly, one of the things you learn is that we, we never had bishops. So we had editors yeah. um, in that second generation. And in that second generation, you had people saying, hey, I heard your sermon against me. Can you turn that into an article? I would love to publish it, and I would love to give a response. This is a very public. Yes. Uh, right, and I think right. sometimes we talk behind closed quarters and back hallways, but we don't have this sort of public discourse that I think makes any denomination, particularly our own, that we're cut with that, we're made with that DNA of dialogue. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we need to have more of what we're we're doing today. So that's beautiful. I, well, thank you. Yeah, I think that's a great frame for our conversation. So good. Um, so, okay, we're going to jump into a dialogue about this topic of wonder. Uh, and so the first question is obviously, what is wonder? Oh, good. Uh, so, so that's chapter one of the dissertation. Okay. And uh, I decided to take uh, what's called a phenomenological approach. Uh, for those who don't know, phenomenology is sort of the philosophy of immediate experience. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's probably the shorthand for it. Mm-hmm. And it takes uh, immediacy into account. It's the immediacy that matters. It's the experience that matters. And experience is both embodied and it's in an environment. So it really takes everything kind of as experienced as the raw material for its philosophizing. So that's the approach I took. And part of the approach is uh, immediately when I, I gave you those descriptions, I mean, those are descriptions of wonder. Uh, and wonder is a very intense experience of immediacy. It's a very intense experience of one is embodiment, which I'll talk about. Uh, it's, it always involves an environment. Uh, and so those sort of things became perfect. So the, the first thing, well, I get there eventually, but the first thing I avoid and actually reject the, the label emotion to mm. go for wonder. Mm. Uh, part of that is when you look at the philosophical tradition, not just Western tradition, um, Kant, Descartes, but also the Eastern tradition, uh, Vedanta, earlier forms of Indian philosophy, Wonder was always this thing that gets described as an emotion, but then they go on for pages trying to explain why it's different. Right. Uh, And uh, so you see that a lot and you start to wonder, well, maybe the reason why you call it an emotion and then take pages to describe it is because emotion is not the word. Uh, Even Descartes starts to kind of hint at this when he says, well, it's the first of the emotions. And in many ways, it's the emotion that precedes all these other forms of mm. emotive and passionate responses mm. by the what, what he calls the soul. Mm. Um, so I said, no, it's not there. It, that's not what it is. Uh, the, the second thing that I noticed was that we have no control of wonder. Mm. We can't say, I'm going to wonder now. Uh, have that experience of awe, uh, experience of wonder. We can't fabricate mm. it. Right. And, and part of what I liked about that is we one of the problems I'm trying to address is this notion that humans value is their utility and their productivity. And so I do a sort of what's called a Marxist analysis of the alienation of the human from him or herself. And a wonder is completely out of our hands. Um, and not only that, in the experience of wonder, the other, and I'm calling the other, the event, the field, the memory, the imagination, 
whether it's the pixel in your lover's eye or the entire surprise romantic dinner. The other is really the actor in wonder. And one who is experiencing wonder is the object of wonder, the recipient of wonder. So notice, it's not only an emotion, it's not only something that we, can, uh, we cannot uh, fabricate or control, it acts on us. It, it, I, caught, I talked about the grasping of wonder. Yeah. And, and we can't control that grasp. So that's the sex, uh, next thing that I talk about. And then the last thing is then if, if it involves the other and involves ourselves, even though it's coming from without, it's experience within. Uh, shortness of breath, uh, our, our gaze is uh, attunely aware of the, the other that elicits wonder. Uh, mm. Sometimes our, our, our chest feels differently, our hands feel differently. Hmm. So it's an embodied event. So even yeah. though it's coming from without, it's felt within. And so hmm. I said, it's, it's, it's in that in-between place where wonder happens. Hmm. Uh, so wonder is an event that's a gift. Yeah. And that even as it follows us uh, through exploration and questioning, it's never in our control. Hmm. I love that. Yeah. So uh, it, it's, I called it eventually an, an intense event. Yes. Between the sort of excess within is what I'm calling the excess within of the other hmm. and our own kind of openness to the world. Right. So yeah. those are the sort of that's the anatomy of wonder It's just that, that the world is sort of bathed in a sort of excess. Yes. Uh, uh, Jean-Luc Marion likes to talk about saturated phenomenon. Right. That it exceeds regular surround. I actually push beyond Marion and say that the horizon of existence is saturated mm. that because wonder can just show up at any time. We can't quite locate anyway. I just think it's an excess or saturation right. in all of life. Yeah. And there are just moments within that all of life where it kind of takes us, it, it, it takes our breath away and it, yeah. and it attunes us to that. So for me, I think that's where wonder lies. Mm. And I think a word like affect is probably better than feeling or emotion mm-hmm. for wonder. Mm-hmm. So uh, affect being this sort of, this, uh, what I call this openness to know and to be known, hmm. uh, that, that, that's what gets hit. That's what gets gripped in yeah. the event of wonder by the excess around us, hmm. the excess within around us. So that's, that's, that's sort of the technical term that I gave for wonder. That's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, there's so much there that I could mine and that I want to talk about. Um, but you know, there's, there's even in, in the process philosophical tradition, there's this idea of exuberance or muchness mm-hmm. or moreness um, right. that I think is so resonant with what you're describing. And in fact, beauty as a sort of aesthetic principle is the product of the relationality of the right. subjective forms themselves. It's not, um, so I, I think that there's so much connection there with that idea. Right. Or, um, and one of the things that you mentioned in your abstract was that not only is wonder this sort of uh, epistemic openness that you talked about, but you did mention that that there's this acting of wonder upon the subject who's experiencing. Right. And right. so I'm curious for you, as you parse that out in your own thinking, um, this idea of this openness to the self, but also the world and to God, which I'm imagining might be this this larger saturation that you argue yeah, yeah, for, yeah, this yeah. divine saturation. Yeah. Like what what is what is God to you in that regard? And then what and could you unpack those concept, concepts for us of the self, the world, and God? What what are those? Sure, sure. Th- well, yeah. well, thank you because you moved yeah. this to chapter two. <laughs> hey, I do what I can. I do it <laughs> quite nicely. Yeah, uh, yeah. I I, I do want to say something about this sort of acting upon because. Uh, first of all, actually, uh, you and I both discuss how I'm not as processed as you are. Yeah, totally. But I ended up, but I ended up drawing on process in that chapter okay. one because there were some categories in process philosophy, like event, yeah, uh, and and how it's understood by somebody like Brian Masumi, that was really helpful. Mm-hmm. Brian Masumi's notion of event, um, he doesn't want to blur the difference between A and B. Right, they have their own integrity. Mm-hmm. They, they don't they don't get dissolved in the event of wonder right and and what i one of the big pieces of that chapter one is i spoke of an ontological tension that's underneath wonder and what i mean by this is in the event of wonder 
there's in some sense you're lost in that field or in that other. Yeah. Uh, but it's not a, a vague loss. I, I, I argue that we never wonder vaguely hmm. that when, when, we, when we're gripped, say, by that romantic dinner that surprises us, we remember the color of the roses. We remember the, the white linen sheet over, over the table. We remember the way the candle was flickering. But we, don't, we, don't, um, we don't wonder vaguely. Uh, and, and yet, we don't get obliterated in that event. In fact... We, um, in some ways, we become really attuned to ourselves. Hmm. So we become extremely aware and attuned to the other and extremely attuned to ourselves simultaneously. And, and so I said, there's this sort of tension there. And it's through the other where we become attuned to ourselves. Hmm. And so that becomes then the, the, the lingering question that I say phenomenology cannot answer this because phenomenology is immediate experience. I'm suggesting something underneath the experience, phenomenology can get us there. And so then that's when I go to metaphysics. Mm-hmm. And uh, to answer this God question, this self question, this other question. Hmm. And what I argue is there's a doctrine in, that was used a lot uh, by the Neoplatonists becomes kind of a big piece for Aquinas and a few others, this doctrine of participation. Participation means there's this higher principle that doesn't belong to us, but that constitutes us, that we have to kind of participate in, in order for us to be what we are, or even for us to just be. So uh, for uh, Aquinas, we participate in being. We don't own our existence. We don't have the power to be human does not ensure that you can be right. There's nothing in humanness that has the power to be itself. And death shows us this. Uh, the precariousness of life shows us this. Yeah. And Aquinas says, well, being itself is God. And we participate in that being for our own being. Hmm. So it, it remains not from us, but it somehow constitutes us. So that's what participation is. And so I argue that participation becomes a great way to address the ontological tension hmm. of things. So that, hmm. that's my solution. Hmm. And I study not just Aquinas, but I study a Jewish poet philosopher by the name of Solomon Ibn Gabriel, uh, who, was, who wrote a, a famous treatise called The Fountain of Life or Fons Vitae. Um, he wrote it in Arabic, but we only have Latin copies available. And then uh, um, uh, a Sufi uh, metaphysician, philosopher, mystic, Ibn Arabi, or Ibn Arabi. Uh, and all three have the doctrine of participation. And I won't lose you in all the specifics. Yeah. Uh, I noted their differences, what you participate in for being or for being what you are. Uh, but then after I did that, I kind of like read more deeply and found that all three had desire as part of being this that there's this sense of desire that runs throughout all of existence and that all of them argue that whatever word you put on it ultimately what grants us life is generosity hmm. it's a gift hmm. and it's a generous gift from god that god need not create yet god creates and that's where now I spoke about the sort of excess, excess within. And I argue then that then what grounds that excess within is a transcendental excess. And I go to excess because generosity is by nature excessive. Generosity, you don't have to do it. And in doing it, you're already doing more than you have to do. So it, by nature, the act of giving is an excessive enterprise. So I argue that then if the act of creation is one of generosity, then all of existence should be marked by this generosity and this excess. Hmm. And that that then is what grounds our being. And that hmm. also then grounds the experience of wonder. That the experience yeah. of wonder comes from the sense of generosity. Yeah. I don't know if that makes any sense. It, it does. It, and I, I love that because I'm, I'm sensing this connection uh, between generosity and excess in such a manner that um, for those of us who do process um, philosophy, becoming is what constitutes being. So 
there's a, what we call a superjecting nature or mm -hmm. that overflow, you know, that, right. you, that you had mentioned. Um, yeah. And I only bring that up to say that I think um, that this, this sort of generativity that you're naming in terms of um, reality as it's moving forward, I'm curious how you would name that excess or that moreness um, in contrast to to that that idea of becoming or is it aliveness is it is it movement is it motion like how how do you right. how do you feel through that and and think about that in your own scheme right and so um i you know you and i have discussed this i'm more of a, cl a classical sort of lowercase orthodox theologian though uh, many Orthodox <laughs> yeah. theologians would disagree with that statement that I just right. said because because I do make some mavericky moves all along the way, but actually I think the word there is creation, hmm. and I think creation's been depleted so much. On one side, by I think the I hate to say this, the biblicists, sort of quote super Christians, that have made creation a sort of mechanical thing between God and what is now, hmm. or uh, the sort of agnostic atheist um, people uh, who have taken sort of a scientific reductionism approach that has also made what is a sort of mechanical vision. Right. I think in both cases, there's a flattening. Hmm. Um, I think creation is a very rich term, which is why, and this is when I rub against my process, brothers and sisters, hmm. a little bit, hmm. uh, Aquinas never used the word creation to talk about anything humans do. He's talked about making, producing, doing. Creation was only something God did. And what is creation? Creation is the emanation of the totality of life from one efficient cause. Uh, mm. That's what it is. And so it's, it's, not, it's not that uh, and e evolution is compatible with that because it doesn't answer that. It's, right. it's behind that. It's the possibility of life itself it emerges, it emanates from this divine source of life uh, called mm. God. And so I actually prefer the term creation mm. and retrieving the rich term that it is. Now, mm. in the dissertation, I mean, part of what you do in a dissertation is you make up words. I mean, that's, right. that's, that's how you earned a sort of doctoral pedigree. Oh, he, he came up with this word. And yeah. so... Um, a lot of theologians, including Marion, uh, actually is even in Aquinas and a few others, they use the term gift for creation. Uh, I actually use the word givingness. And I think this is when you and I can have a rich conversation because yeah. it's this sort of ongoing giving and receiving yeah. that, that, that is underneath reality, that's underneath yes. uh, life. Hmm. And I say that because creation is not something that. In, the, in a classical understanding, and that's something that happened, you know, I don't know what it is now. I'm, I'm guessing 18 billion years, I think is what they're saying, the, the origin, the origin. 13.8 or 9. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, it's something that happens in every moment, that, mm -hmm. that this generosity is sustaining the whole of being mm. in every instance. Mm. And, and so it's this perennial givingness is what I call it. Mm. And so notice the sort of dynamic quality that then uh, an apple has, uh, a tree has, a human has, uh, a skyline has. It's this perennial sort of at every moment, the emanation of life from life itself, uh, from generosity mm. itself, from beauty itself, from goodness itself, that sort of gives this dynamic quality to mm. life that makes wonder a possibility in experience. Hmm. So would you hold, I mean, that, that idea of beauty itself and wonder itself, would you hold those as sort of transcendentals? Um, yeah. um, so, so how would you categorize that, um, you know, in terms of your own scheme? And I'm also curious, maybe how would you make a distinction between creation and creativity in that sort of that, that givingness, is that what you called it? Yeah. Givingness. Um, yeah. yeah. How would you, how would you think about those things? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I, I do think that those are transcendentals and this is when I just take a page right out of Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. Uh, the, the transcendentals, but I, I avoid directionality. Right. So my, my issue with a lot of people who kind of gave up on transcendence as well, that makes God far. Right. Uh, and so we want God imminent. Yeah. And so, uh, because we want God close. Well, first of all, the fact that you use the terms far and close, you've already, 
misunderstood what we mean by God. Hmm. If God is of a different ontological category altogether, then directionality doesn't matter. And uh, I always take the example from Confessions um, by Augustine. Everybody talks about the image he uses there of the sponge and the ocean. Mm -hmm. People need to keep reading because then he later says, well, that metaphor has its problems. Hmm. And he says this, he says, because if that's true, then an elephant has more God than a gnat. Right. If we're taking that literally. Right. Because there's more surface, more volume, physical Mm -hmm. volume to an elephant Mm -hmm. than there is to a gnat. If we use that metaphor wrongly, then we're basically saying that the t- let you, Tim, because you're a foot and a half taller than I am, yeah. you <laughs> yeah. you have more God than I do. Yeah, sure. But but in a different ontological category, transcendent means for Aquinas, it cuts across all genera and species. It cuts yeah. across all genera and species. Yeah. So Imminence is contained within the word transcendence. And so when I say uh, beauty, say, is a transcendent, I not only mean that it cuts across all general and species, I logically also means is intimately closer mm-hmm. uh, than you are. And so later in, uh, I want to say it's later in Confessions, Augustine says, God, you're higher than my highest thought, but more inward than my inmost being. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's transcendence. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I would, I would put them along, uh, I think the term that Aquinas uses is co-extensive with being. Yeah. So beauty is co-extensive with being. Goodness is co-extensive with being. Um, and uh, oneness, so everything has their own integrity, is co-extensive with being. So I, that's where I would put them. I say when yeah. we talk about existence, we are, whether we like it or not, talking about goodness, talking about beauty, talking about unity, yeah. uh, talking about these things. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I would put those in those categories as sort mm-hmm. of co-extensions with being. Yeah. That in the word being, in the word existence, all these other sort of qualities are, are contained therein. And would you make a distinction between creativity and creation in the way that you're, you're talking about it now or – are those synonymous in any way or? Well, I mean, because if I'm going to follow um, Aquinas completely, mm-hmm. then even creativity belongs to God alone. Because if only God can create, okay. then you can't give anything. Now, I, I, I agree with him in what he's trying to ch- achieve that. But I also recognize that words can be fluid. And I've seen artists create masterful pieces. And mm-hmm. in my head, I make a qualitative distinction between creation as the emanation of all of life and creation as something that gets produced from raw materials and so sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I obviously think that um, particularly in goodness, hmm. uh, goodness is self-diffusing. That means to say it gives of itself. That part of goodness, and I argue this in the Aquinas section of chapter 2, that it is part of goodness nature to give and to give of itself. Yeah. And so uh, I think that uh, I think there you put uh, is, is where I would put the, 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 the notion of creativity mm-hmm. and that if we share in this being, then we obviously share in the potentiality to create in a secondary sense, not in the primary emanation of life, but that, in our very own being, because goodness is part of of um, of, of coextensive with being, then obviously some of that creativity is sort of um, uh, embroidered into uh, what it means to be the right. ability to to create. It's interesting. I didn't say beauty uh, through that, but um, I think beauty and goodness are related. And yeah. some would say that beauty is goodness in relation, so that the that the goodness in in its whole as it's organized and laid together with the with the different parts coming together meeting each other that that's beauty and it's interesting that for Aquinas beauty goodness is a thing of the desire and the will beauty is actually a thing of the intellect and and so then it brings even closer this notion people think that theopoetics theoesthetics these sorts of things are just trying to evade thinking I actually think that we're trying to reclaim an original sense of thinking that includes uh, the sensuous and includes the, uh, the desirous. It includes elements that have been flattened out by the enlightenment. Mm. 
Hmm. And so, uh, yeah. yeah, I would, I would definitely, but I would, you know, in a, in a, in a primary sense, I would say that creativity only belongs to God, but obviously I'm not, you know, I recognize words are malleable. Yeah. And so I say, obviously it belongs to us because being, because we participate in being yeah. and coextensive with being is goodness and beauty. And that's where mm. we talk about things mm. like creativity. Beautiful. Well, I'm starting to get a sense that the, this connection that you make between wonder and generosity too. I mean, these, these ideas of creation and, and beauty and uh, this givingness is, is so um, directly tied to this praxis of generosity. Right. I, I love that, again, in your abstract, you sort of have this flow toward then a lived um, praxis of generosity. Right. And um, we just had Diana Butler Bass out a, a couple of months ago. And one of the things that, that she drew out in um, her book, Grateful, mm-hmm. um, is this Roman uh, idea of... Um, what, what did she call it? Uh, this Roman system of indebtedness that was called gratus. Mm-hmm. Um, and how sometimes in our society, gratitude can be this thing that keeps a power dynamic in play. And yet you're making a connection. Um, like I, I think she probably begs that, but I think your, yours is, is more philosophically robust of this idea that that, that system of indebtedness is, is, not, is not the thing. It's this generative, mm-hmm. life-giving and liberating um, right. reality. And so could you, right. could you lead us into how you make that connection into a lived, um, uh, sure. praxis of generosity and, and what it offers for our world today? Sure. Sure. So, so, uh, so I, I'm stuck. So on one end, I'm stuck with the, with the claim I've made, which I'm sticking through it to the day I die that yeah. we can't control wonder. Right. Right. So there's nothing we can do to sort of say, Hey, uh, let's, create for people a wondrous experience. And I think that's, for example, where the church goes wrong. They're aiming at wonder. Hmm. But we discovered that what makes wonder possible is this generosity. So now we've ontologically, the term in terms of being, we've tied wonder to generosity. Hmm. And then I argue in chapter four, which was a big discovery for my own person, because I was going to aim at wonder when I talked about liturgy and liberation. Right. I realized we don't aim at wonder. We aim at generosity. And it is by becoming generous beings, uh, open to the other, giving to the other and receiving from the other, that then we become more malleable to, more susceptible to experiences of wonder, which are really ultimately experiences of joy. Hmm. Uh, and that's where the transformation happens. I, I, I'm a big proponent that joy actually is transforming. Hmm. Um, so, so that's what I, I if, it's, if, if generosity grounds wonder, yet we can't pin down, grab wonder, we could live out of a generosity if we want to be somebody that, that gets awed by the world that really we can never, even then we can never control it, but there's this sense in which you become radically open to mm-hmm. the experience of wonder, mm. radically available to the experience mm. of wonder. And mm. that happens to generosity. Now mm. uh, I do say that, that the whole of the church's witness, if you will, is grounded in what I call this praxis of generosity. Uh, and a praxis that begins with God's generosity, which I argue we can never match. There's nothing we can do that can scratch the surface to the gift of being. Yeah. yeah. Just nothing. Nothing. You can fast 80 days, double Jesus record on this. Um, right. It doesn't matter. You can, you know, carry eight crosses instead of one every day. It doesn't matter. There's nothing that compares to the gift and the givingness of being Hmm. Uh, what we can do is kind of go with the flow of that givenness and become what we were made to be. So if we were made out of generosity, then we were made toward generosity. Uh, Goodness in Aquinas's um, sort of metaphysics is the reason for why things are, but also the telos or the purpose the end for which things move. And so, again, I argue that generosity is our source, but also our end, hmm. our purpose. Yeah. And so it is in living in 
attuned to our grounding generosity, that then we become radically available to the experience of wonder. Hmm. Hmm. And so then the church's practices of say communion, baptism, these are practices of being radically open to generosity. Yeah. Practices to be open to the generous giving of, of God in Christ. Um, uh, and then the deliberation, the act of liberation is uh, also another radical way in which we're radically open to the other. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. And you gave me the drink that even in the moments when we don't recognize we're, we're encountering excess itself. We're encountering Christ yeah. in these moments of, of generosity. I, I parse out, so I don't like the word debt. I'm with you. And I can't remember, there's a, a scholar that recently did a, a, a book on economics and theology and said that the word of debt is, is a problematic term. Yeah, yeah. You, you, might, you, might, you might know this scholar. Uh, but I, I do like the word demand, um, that there's a, that in givingness, in the generosity of being, there's both, a gratuity and a demand. Um, and the demand is embedded in who we are. So it's, it's always a freeing demand, right? I, I'm not one that says freedom is being able to do whatever you want. You and I both know that that leads to catastrophe. That leads to what we have today. Um, White house and beyond. Um, <laughs> yeah. Had to throw it in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so uh, freedom is the power to be who you were intended to be. So if we were grounded in generosity, then therefore we're made to be generous being, uh, generous beings in the world. Um, then, um, then the demand of generosity is again a gift. So even the demand right. returns back into a gift. Uh, and so for me, I think I rather talk about the gratuity and the demand of gift. And and then I don't say, oh, liturgy is the gratuity. And liberation's a demand. I think that both liturgy and liberation both have a gratuity and a demand within them. Yeah. A, a call to to live into that. So then for you, this idea of participating in a life of generosity and the demand of that um, at the at the core of your being is not coercive. It's not commanded, but it's you're saying it's it's sort of uh, it's a calling or a gift, a, a givingness, like you said, or a gift right. um, that is, has a, so almost like this deep purpose to it right. for your, your production of joy. Yeah. Yeah. So the yeah. classical Christian understanding of freedom always ties freedom to purpose mm-hmm. or to mm-hmm. end to tell mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. So it's freeing precisely because it's a call to be that which you were made to be anyway. Right. So right. then, so then, um, in Islamic uh, doctrines of sin, the root of all sin is forgetfulness, right? We forget whose we are and who we are. Yeah. And it's in this remembering who we are that we find freedom. That's the Islamic understanding of, mm-hmm. of not just sin, but freedom from sin. Yeah. And, and I think Christian tradition can borrow this and actually has semblances of this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's not, a, right, it's not a coercion. It's more like... Um, is not any more coercion than letting a bird out of its cage and telling the bird to fly. It may be hard for the bird at first to fly, but it's telos, it's being, it's end, it's to fly. It's invitation. It's, yeah, it's an invitation yeah. to, to live fully into that which we already are. Yeah. Um, and it, there's not a coercion. A coercion right. would mean right. forcing you to be something you're not. And I actually think mm-hmm. that uh, generosity is what we deeply are. To be yeah. generous is what we deeply are. Yeah. And, and what hurts us, what we call sin, what mm-hmm. we call brokenness, mm-hmm. is the inability or the lack of desire or the running away from our grounding in generosity. Yeah, that's wonderful. And, and so I, I love that you um, are also now making this connection between this lived praxis of generosity and this liberation. I mean, one of the, you know, the surge of liberation theology, especially in the Latin American tradition, mm-hmm. um, in this Western conversation is so needed right now. Yeah. But I, I think for people, when they hear that, they probably don't connect this idea of wonder with liberation, you know, yeah. and yet you're making a number of moves here that, that bring us to that place. So could you talk about how, um, how that works for you and how, um, 
this praxis of generosity is actually liberating for us? And, and maybe can you even set that in the conversation around liberation theology today? Sure, sure. So I think, uh, I, I think that the jump from uh, generosity to justice, uh, it's, it's fairly easy one to make. Yeah. That, that if you see um, ju- justice can be seen as the right ordering of the generous existence of life with all being. Um, you, can, you can sort of argue philosophically for that sort of definition. Uh, I think that would be, that would be, we can end the conversation there and be happy. Yeah. But yet I also think uh, there's other conversation pieces that I talked about in terms of wonder and in terms of generosity that, that also I think are highlighted in the event. Let's use that word event of, of liberation. Uh, there's this ontological tension, right? That you fully discover yourself through the other, right? That in the event of wonder, you're very attuned to the other and you're also very attuned to yourself. Uh, I think liberation has a similar parallel experience that it is in reaching out to the other that we sort of kind of find ourselves precisely because we were made from the start to be for the other with the other. Hmm. So it's this deep finding of self by being for the other. Uh, <clears throat> In many ways, and I put this only in a footnote because I don't want the John Sartre, John Paul Sartre Association to come after me. Right. It's a reversal of Sartre's uh, notion of being. You know, uh, Sartre starts with being in itself and then being for itself, and then says, "Oh crap, there's other people." <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, oh, so let's let's uh, let's talk about being for others. The Christian tradition starts the other way around. Um, we actually start with being for others. That's how we're born. And there I brought in Enrique Dussel, who talks about praxis as proximity, um, that we are born into a, a state of praxis in that we're born to be in a proximate location or situation with our mothers mm-hmm. from the start. Mm-hmm. So we're born with and for the other from the start. So we actually reverse John Paul Sartre. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, a being for itself that happens out of that sense of relationality yep. that say, if we live in this relationality, our being for itself, it's really a being for others, that those two are never separated. Right. And then the hope is that in that encounter of that being for others and being for itself, that we encounter being itself. Uh, which is God, the, the creation. So in many ways, the Christian tradition kind of reverses uh, Sartre's uh, understanding. And I, think, and I think that's the big piece, that this, if wonder is about this radical openness to the other, uh, well, so is justice, right? Justice is this radical openness to the other, which is why it's easy to say something like, you don't oppress somebody you find to be or you see as wonderful. Uh, <clears throat> because in both a sense of justice for the other and a sense of awe for the other, they involve a, a deep openness to the other, but not openness to the other. One of the pieces I argue in chapter three that wonder gives us is that wonder shows us that not only are we open to the other, which is found in Hans Werber von Balthasar and Rahner and Pannenberg, where I push differently is we're also opened by the other. Right. And that's what wonder reveals that we can't be, we can't we can't find ourselves in any way mm-hmm. unless we're we allow ourselves to be opened by this other. Mm-hmm. I didn't include um, this person, and I should have because she's a disciple theologian. But Christine Culp, who's at University of Chicago, she wrote a book on vulnerability and says, "Look, mm-hmm. we're vulnerable from the start. The point is not to be vulnerable. The point is to recognize that vulnerable is the avenue for trauma, but is also the avenue for transformation." Hmm. And recognizing our very DNA is this vulnerability. And I think that's a reclaiming of that, that if yeah. we want to really find ourselves, we will be vulnerable. Or um, uh, the word that Gabriel Marcel likes to use, uh, the, this uh, available to the other. Hmm. And it is in that availability where we actually find ourselves. And so yeah. I, I always yeah. tell people that Matthew 25, that everybody talks about it. I'm not trying to de- de- uh, diminish the experience of physical hunger because – I mean, I, I've been, my, my family and I have been near homeless, almost homeless. We uh, we grew up in the very poor side of Chicago. Trust me when I say that none of that stuff should be taken lightly. It's life and death. But one of the things I love about Matthew 25 is it's the one who gives the bread that is the one who is encountering Jesus in a sense. Um, it says, you get what you gave to them, you gave to me. And we forget that there's, you know, the, the hubris sometimes I would say on the left 
Hmm. is to put us above those that we serve. That justice kind of puts us in this position of a new form of power. But but we're actually vulnerable to the poor because we're encountering none other than Christ in that encounter. We're being confronted with something that's greater than us. And so I think in that sense, the sense of wonder tied with wonder tied with generosity kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I want to, and when I wanted to save against this notion, this romantic notion of wonder, it's just sort of la la land. You go sit on clouds and kind of ponder and you have little right. chubby angels with harps playing behind you. Right. I think wonder is a, is a deep engagement with the world. Right. And it's not a detachment from it. Right. And I think, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think people, uh, you hear the word wonder, you think curiosity, right? Yeah, you think yeah. this idea of sort of pondering things, you know, yeah. um, which clearly you've done, <laughs> but also, but you, you bring such, you know, such a, the only word I can think of is this sort of exuberance or robustness to this idea um, that uh, I think is so necessary because it does a couple of things. Like first it, it connects liberation, which is transformation is mm-hmm. connectedness is, is the opposite of isolation in, in your articulation um, and your phenomenology of it. And uh, it, it also connects this a dimension of not emotion because you made that distinction, but experience or mm-hmm. aesthetics. And so I guess I'm curious for you, where, um, you know, uh, you're a DJ, mm-hmm. right? You, yeah. you spin, you spin tracks, you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And so for you, how do you connect this notion of wonder? We just heard you talk about how it connects to liberation, but how does it also connect to the aesthetic dimension or the yeah. musical uh, component, the melodic uh, yeah, yeah. rhythm of life for you? Like what, sure. what gets you excited about that? Sure, sure. Well, uh, oh, thank you for bringing that up. You know, I I think, uh, well, let me, one thing I didn't say early on in in that chapter one, I said it's not an emotion, but it's accompanied by emotions. Yeah. Um, And and I end by saying that the greatest of these is joy, but then also push joy beyond an emotion, right? Uh, To be careful with that. So I do think that joy is is an emotion, but it's much more than that. Um, You know, that's an interesting question to ask. I think, you know, DJing is the creation of a whole using many parts that when put together are greater than all those parts put together. A set. Um, You're creating a, a set. set. Right. You yeah. create a set. And a set is not a sequencing of songs merely. It's the creation of something new out of that sequencing. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, there's an ontological tension between me and the dance floor. Uh, yeah. There's yeah. this... I'm learning what 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 sounds and rhythms uh, this particular crowd likes versus right. another particular, and I'm feeding off of that and yeah. being aware of my own sort of sensibilities. Yeah. So I I do think uh, for me it comes back to the sort of relationality, but not just relationality, but this sort of sort of raw, open, available relationality that's really at the core of who we are. Uh, we've seen the trauma version of that in injustice and pain. Uh, we see it in the Me Too movement. We see it in Black Lives Matter, how this vulnerability gets exploited and used That's right. to oppress some. But we've also seen it in these moments of beauty and grace. Uh, so it's this raw relationality of openness, of of availability that I think is there. You know, I was one of my regrets um, with the dissertation is I started to read a, a Mexican philosopher by the name of Jose Vasconcelos. He's considered the sort of intellectual architect of the Mexican revolution. So he was with Zapata and all those revolutionary guys. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because you've got these revolutionary heroes, at least in Mexico, they're seen as heroes, this side of the, of the, of the wall that we, we see them differently. Mm-hmm. Um, we see them as terrorists and those other things. I think they were heroes for, for their people. And in the midst of this sort of revolutionary presence, this praxis of liberation, you have this guy who's into aesthetics, this guy, Vasconcelos, uh, who says that the first science is not epistemology, it's not ethics like Levinas, it's aesthetics. That's where it starts, that yeah. all yeah. of being, he says, is rhythm and rhyme. Yeah, yeah. all of it. 
yep. and he starts there. And I, I'll send you the the English piece. I mean, he are, unfortunately not much has been translated into English. Yeah, but I do have some English writings from his. I'll send them your way. I'm sure. You Please can. do. I, but, I can drive uh, with that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's uh, he was brilliant, and uh, that was one of my my regrets that it just didn't fit at this moment. Yeah. Um, but one of my future projects would be to theologically engage Vasconcelos hmm. beyond where he has already been engaged. He's been engaged in uh, that notion of cosmic race by some of the earliest U.S. Uh, Hispanic uh, liberation theologians. But I actually think that's his most problematic text. <laughs> I think some of his other stuff is better. Um, Hmm. But I think when you talk about aesthetics, aesthetics is always about the relation of things. Hmm. Um, it, it's not it's not an isolated object, and it's not yep. um, individual objects standing against each other. There's this sort of relation, but it's not just a relation. Aesthetics is also about openness to that relation, and it's not just about an openness of that relation, because I think that openness is there even minimally through our eyes, through our ears, through our smell. We're radically, we're already open to everything around us, which is why I can see this wall. I can see you. I can see my books. I can see um, my daughter's picture behind me. Um, but a radical one where you almost enter into that space and you let that space enter your own being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where I think the, the sense of wonder. And I think, mm-hmm. I think when you live generously um, and when you live generously, which also means to live gratefully. So here Diana Butler Bass is, I think, on to something. I think those are the moments that are most filled with awe and joy. I think those are the moments you can't control wonder. I'm holding on to that, to the grave. Yep. But I think you could become amenable to or open to or radically open to wonder. And I think that way is through generosity. And so I think aesthetics, aesthetics, aesthetics um, requires a little bit of generosity. Does it not? I mean, it requires generosity from the person, say an art piece, being open to that art piece for it to speak to you. Uh, It also requires the generosity of the artist uh, to give uh, something that she or he uh, do not need to give, but they do. And so I think that that uh, the the aesthetics uh maybe there's an aesthetics of generosity that that you and i need to write together or something like that yeah yeah right (laughs) well you know one of the things that i'm uh not only hearing but experiencing in in this conversation and i have with you before as well is the generosity of your spirit as a philosopher and theologian um you know many of us and many of our listeners probably are are in a um a place of plurality in their religious worldview. Mm-hmm. And you've, you've been here as, as a firmly rooted Christian minister mm-hmm. who, who believes and preaches the gospel and mm-hmm. walks the gospel, but you've been quoting Sufi philosophers, you've yeah. been quoting uh, Jewish philosophers. Yeah. And so, so this for you seems to be deeper. Um, and it, it seems to also inform your methodology, I guess, is what yeah, I'm yeah. trying to say. And so I just yeah, wanted yeah, to sure. say that I'm grateful for that. And, um, I'm also curious if you could maybe just say a couple of words around like um, how you uh, can stay rooted and also con- conversant with all of this wider sure. perspective. Right. So I'll, I'll start by saying something that's uh, raised a few eyebrows, uh, but it's not new. Uh, a lot of comparative theologians like Ansel Min at CGU, mm-hmm. uh, Paul Nitter, uh, I want to say he's a union, a few others. Um, I actually do away with the term pluralism mm-hmm. as a sort of philosophical position. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's tenable. A pluralism, part of pluralism kind of believes that there's some neutral ground called pluralism mm-hmm. and that from then, then we kind of fit all the religions in together. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's possible. I don't think the process approaches to it with multiple ultimate realities. All you're doing is forming a new particularity. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I do away with that. We can't get rid of bias. You can't, there's no, there's the only thing, the only options are exclusive or inclusive. Well, I think all the enduring religions, they, they've had moments of exclusivity, which I think some of them are pragmatic moments of exclusivity. Yep. When you're at the threat of annihilation, at a brink of survival or, or, or not surviving, that sort of an exclusive message is what latches on for people to sort of keep the tradition, keep the stories. But all the traditions have a sort of openness to the other. 
and Christianity is not uh, it's not exempt from that openness. Um, in Islam, there's this wonderful verse in the in the Quran that says, "God says, I punish whom I will, but my mercy encompasses all." Punishment is the exception for God. The rule is mercy. In, in the Christian tradition, uh, it says, First uh, Timothy, I want to say, it says something like, and we preach this God who through Christ saved the whole world, comma, especially those who believe. Now, that's a book. That's, that's an entire book. And I wrote a short piece that's coming out uh, this semester for a, a, a journal on that. Um, the, the point is that w- I think pluralism as a practice is a must. We all have to do it. Philosophically, is on weak ground. Uh, Min says in one of his books, and so Min, he says that uh, a philosophy on pluralism, once you establish it, it undermines itself. Uh, but the practice you can do, and I think what we have to do is, how do we live out of our t- particularities in a generous way? Yeah. That's the best we can do. I don't want the Muslim to somehow say, Jose, I can't believe that the Quran is the perfect word of God sent from God to the prophet because somehow that excludes you. The, I mean, notice somebody's getting excluded if you start to try to make some sort of general generic religion where everybody kind of stands and then we kind of go our separate ways for the accoutrements and the coloring and the flavoring. Uh, It doesn't work that way. We all work out of a particularity. And yet this particularity has always made not only a space for the other, but also it's a particularity that points the finger at itself first. Uh, Hans Kuhn, uh, in his book uh, on being a Christian, he says, the church is a credible spokesperson to Jesus Christ only when it speaks of Christ first to itself. And I think that that's what it comes down to. I think the best question is what kind of inclusive, particular believers are we going to be? Yeah. And, and I would err on the side of what the Quran said and what we find in Scripture. That, uh, yeah, the wrath of God is there because injustice is there, because brokenness is there, because we humans have done that. But mercy encompasses all. And I think that we hold our particularities in such a way that we live out of them in a way of justice, in a way of compassion, in a way of mercy. But we do it as robustly Christocentric or as Quranic or as um, devoted to the Eightfold Path um, or what have you, as you want to. And then just... Um, uh, and then just live with whatever tension that brings. I mean, that's yeah. that's just fine. Uh, I have a buddy of mine who's a Shia Muslim, and we, we came to the agreement early that he's not going to convert me and that I'm not going to convert him. Yet we also came to the realization that somehow, how I understand God, I see that God manifested in my friend. God is clearly at work in his life good he's generous he's loving he's caring and he realized the same thing about me and and so we've decided to live extend our own hospitality my christian hospitality to the muslim and the muslim's going to extend a muslim hospitality to the christian Hmm. and i think that's the best we can do we can't avoid particularity it's how we hold that particularity and i've actually become more christocentric the more interfaith i've become Hmm. that's yeah, that's may call it the ontological tension, the soteriological yeah, right. tension. How about that? Yeah, right. Yeah. No, I hear that. Okay, well, we have covered a lot of ground yeah, today, and yeah. uh, it's all it's good stuff. I, I think people are going to really enjoy this. So, um, here's the last thing: uh, you're a preacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you had to give us uh, an invitational benediction to be the sort of capstone to this conversation on wonder and you try you had to do it for a popular audience yeah for people who don't get the the philosophy potentially how would you close out this invitation to a life saturated in wonder and i just would love to maybe end with that and then we'll say our goodbye well uh there's a benediction i used every sunday uh in my first church when i was a disciple minister back in northwest indiana 
And I would use that same one because I think it encapsulated uh, everything that I say here. And I'll tweak it a little bit, but it'll be mainly untweaked. And I would say this, go into the world in mercy, do good, return to no one evil for evil, help the suffering, honor all things, do all these things in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, Jose, um, this has been a wonderful conversation. It has for me too. Pun intended. So no, thank you for, for taking the time and for your voice uh, of intentionality and uh, I think deep uh, care and concern for um, our world and for people and um, for bringing your wisdom today. We'll say goodbye for now, but we'll have to do another conversation soon. Well, thank you, my brother. You're very welcome, bro. Thank you for all you do. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Theopoetics Podcast. If you like what you heard here, you can log on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform and subscribe and leave us a rating. You can also keep up with us on social media at at TheopoeticsCast or tweet at me at at TD Burnett. Also, don't forget to check out our sponsors, ARC, at artsreligionculture.org. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Burnett. Love wisdom, create beauty, and make peace, everyone. Thank you.